0: The text that we've got before us today has been described as the end of a book within the book of John. That's where we come to today as we finish up uh, chapter 12, and what has been called the book of signs. So, this section of John, besides the, uh, the prologue and the epilogue at the end, this section Uh, kind of taking up chapters 1 all the way through 12 and coming to a conclusion here, it describes the public ministry of Jesus and and it portrays the ministry in two primary ways. In the first place, it portrays the ministry in terms of the signs that Jesus did and secondly, in the words that Jesus spoke. So called the book of signs, But also, of course, these extended, uh, if you want to call them sermons or discourses that Jesus has throughout this book that we have read together. Now, as I read it for us today, this particular section, remember that even in the reading of it and in the preaching of it, the Word of God that you're about to hear is not just an ancient text. It is the living Word of God. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is able to penetrate and to divide and to discern between soul and spirit, between joints and marrow, and to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. May it do that as we interact with it today as God's people in the context particularly of corporate worship. So here, this portion of the Word of God, I'll read 36 to the end of chapter 12, and maybe in your Bibles you uh, note that 36 is kind of divided. Uh, The first part of 36 ends the section that we looked at uh, last week, but I'll read it, Uh, and then this middle part of 36 kind of begins this section. I'll read the whole of it though. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The word that he has spoken, Lord, we pray that you would help us today to hear the word spoken and the word written, and we pray that it would impact us. We pray that it would transform us. We pray that you would fulfill exactly what you have said and promised about your word in our midst this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we begin this sermon today with a question. And it's a question that uh, perhaps you've just thought about internally. It's, it's gotten to your soul and you've asked the question, if not out loud, to ourselves, but perhaps you actually have formulated this question out loud and asked it to others and sought to understand it. And, and the question is simply this, why don't more people believe the gospel? Why, 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 aren't every, why aren't there people sitting in every one of the pews right now? Why aren't we sitting up chairs in the back? Why don't more people believe the gospel? If it's good news, why don't more people believe in Jesus? If it's true, well, then why don't more people at school, at university, who seem to be concerned with what is true, why don't they believe it? Why do false religions have such traction in the world. and So many people follow after false gods and untruths. Why, when you go to explain the gospel, say something about Jesus, say something, quote something from your Bible, give thanks to the Lord, when you talk to your friends and your family about Jesus, why don't they say, I want to hear more of that? Can I come to your Bible study? Can I come to your church? Can I hear more about the good news of Jesus Christ? If Jesus is, in the first place, the eternal word, the eternal word through whom, by whom, and for whom the world was spoken into existence, it was spoken into existence by his words, his words have that kind of authority, how? When he comes to the earth, incarnate, and speaks, how does that not quicken all of the people who hear it into immediate, lively obedience and faith? Why don't they believe if his word has that kind of power to create and to recreate? If Jesus is the light of the world, by which all men see, then why? Why, when he comes into the world and dons flesh so that we can see him, and in that flesh does these wonderful signs, so many signs, as John says it. Why don't more people believe in the light? If he's right in front of them, the one who gives light and life to all men, why don't they look and believe and receive everlasting light? Now for the followers of Christ in the early church, this question had one more particular aspect to it. For us, I'll get to it in just a moment, but for us, We don't share this concern because over the course of the centuries, we've become kind of used to this idea. But for the early church, there was this extension to that question, and it was, why didn't more of God's particular people, the Jewish nation, why didn't more of them respond to the gospel? Why didn't more of them believe in the Messiah who was sent to them? Well, John wants to answer that question. That's his object here. His object is to answer the question that is set before us and a corollary to that question, which is, what do you do? What do you do in the face of unbelief? When so many people don't believe around you, what are you supposed to say then? In our text, we're going to tackle the why question first, and then we'll come back to the other uh, question. What do you do uh, as we get to the second portion of it? But verse 37 articulates this issue for us, okay? So verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Unbelief is the issue. Uh, D.A. Carson calls this little section of Scripture here, a theology of unbelief. We think of a theology of faith, a theology of belief. This is a theology of unbelief. How is it, why is it that people can hear this and not believe in it, not trust in it? And as John begins to deal with the reality and the question that flows out of it, he chooses two passages from Isaiah to explain why this is the case. The first of these two passages is in verse 38, and it shows us in verse 38 that unbelief is included in the deep counsels of God's eternal decree. Unbelief isn't just floating out there somewhere. Something that came in it's, it's contained within the deep counsels of God, even when it looks like his purposes are being thwarted. Right? You would think that that looks like, well, it didn't work out so well. You came, you taught, you did the signs, and you got the show for it. That didn't work. That's not the case. His purposes are not being thwarted. Think of it this way, even when people refuse to listen to the word or refuse to believe the word, the word is being fulfilled. So even if you are here this morning and right now you're thinking, you know, the Super Bowl is coming up tonight and I wonder who's going to, I wonder who's going to win the game. I wonder if it's going to be a good game. I wonder if it's going to be an exciting game. If you're thinking that right now, or if you are daydreaming right now, or if you are dreaming right now while the Word of God is going forth, you are not thwarting the purposes of the Word going forth. You are actually, sorry to tell you, fulfilling them. You're fulfilling those purposes as they go forth today. The Word of God, oftentimes, as we look at it, appears to have failed. And yet, what is being said here is that's not the case. It looks like it's not accomplishing its purpose, but in fact, it is accomplishing exactly the purpose for which it was sent. Look at verse 38, then, with me. Verse 38 says, they don't believe, that's what 37 said, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. They don't believe the word so that the word spoken by Isaiah would be fulfilled. And then he quotes from one of the most beloved Christological passages in the entire Old Testament to make his point. It, of course, is the passage that's on the front of your bulletins this morning. Isaiah 53, 1 is what he quotes, "'Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?' It's a cry. It's a lament for the people of Israel." not to have heard and not to have seen. That's the two aspects of this verse. The idea of the first part is the word going forth, who's believed what he has heard. And the second part of it, and to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is a way of describing the mighty acts of God. In in this case, he had done so many signs and wonders in front of them. So the words and what you have seen in the acts of God who has believed them. John is telling us here that the rejection of Jesus was not a surprise. It was not a surprise to God that his son would be rejected by the very people to whom he came. That, in fact, was the expectation. That, in fact, is a fulfillment of what God had said and promised about the coming of his son. It's what the scriptures foretold. It has happened before. It's happened back in Isaiah's time, and it's happened here as well, that God sends the word out into the world. He sends his prophets out into the world. He sends his law out into the world, and we don't listen to it. And what that reveals is the veracity of his word because that's what his word says. It demonstrates the trustworthiness of the word because that's what the word anticipated and as it does that it reveals the depth of our rebellion if we continued in Isaiah 53. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We have gone so far away from the shepherd that we cannot hear his voice. And we don't recognize his voice and we can't distinguish the sounds that come from him. We're so far away that we can't pick up what's being said anymore. We're sheep who have wandered off so far from the sheepfold that we no longer can embrace the shepherd's voice when left to our own devices. And, and this is a little bit tricky. That, that phrase is important because for Christians, we can, we can think so much now that God has done a mighty work in our hearts. How could you not hear? How could you not see? How could you not believe? But when left to our own devices, if we can even imagine that Humanly, what we will do is exactly what is said in Isaiah 53. We will despise. We will despise Jesus. We will reject the one who was sent from God. We will reject the word of God spoken. We will reject the word of God incarnate. To us, to us, he will look ugly. He will look ugly. That's what it says here. No form, no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Left to our own devices, Jesus looks ugly. And his words, his words sound, just remember just the last passage that we looked at, his words sound like thunder. Did it just just thunder in here? His words don't sound like anything to us. They sound like, well, maybe that was an angel. Maybe that was something else. Anything. Anything. But the word of God. And that is the deafness and the blindness that was chosen by our first parents. They did not listen to the word of God. They were challenged, did God really say? Did he really speak it? And they saw the fruit, and they saw that the fruit was lovely to the eyes, and it was able to make one wise. And as a result, as a result, deafness and blindness went to all of their children, to ourselves who inherited it and then delightfully practiced the same exact thing. John continues, and he continues to to build up to his conclusion of the theology of unbelief in verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. Now, we have to let that sink in. They could not believe, they didn't have the capacity to believe. Think of the last two signs here for a moment that John has chosen for us. The last two signs. The dead man, the dead are dead. They can't believe just like the dead are dead and the dead can't do anything. The dead can't rise, the dead can't live, the dead can't understand. And then the one before that, the man who was born blind, he can't see. The man who's born blind can't make himself somehow to be able to see and to perceive and to understand we're dead, we're deaf, we're blind, which leads to the next passage that he quotes here for us. And this passage that he quotes here is, of course, if you're you're tracking and putting these things together, it was the end of Isaiah chapter 6 that we read earlier in the service that Joel read for us. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. How many missionaries have been inspired by Isaiah's example? Who will go? I'll go. I'll go and proclaim the word. And yet the word that he's actually given to proclaim is a word that's this one. God's blinded you. God has made you unable to hear, unable to comprehend. God has hardened your heart. Now, I know, I trust that you, like I, when you read that, I remember the first time trying to recollect, uh, trying to think through ideas like this, I recoiled. I recoiled in horror at this idea the first time I saw this presented in Scripture or the first time I really understood what it might be saying in Scripture. They strike us, words like this, though this passage in particular is quoted by Jesus in each of the synoptic Gospels and it's used by Paul in Romans chapter 11. It's not an unfamiliar passage idea that is here, but we recoil because when we read it, we see that the hardening that's described here is at the hand of God. It it, it wouldn't cause us to recoil if the hardening was at the hand of man. What causes that is that the hardening is at the hand of God, and we might think, well, okay, hardening. Hardening is one thing when we're talking about somebody like Pharaoh, if you know your Bibles, you can read your Bibles and see how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that's one thing. He was a bad guy. But here, instead of just talking about Pharaoh, we see kind of a more general application of this idea of God's hardening, and it makes us question. Listen to it in a, in a slightly different form. And this is from Deuteronomy chapter 29. You don't have to turn there right now. 2 to 4 is the reference if you want to look it up later. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all the land. Okay. So the arm, of, to put it in Isaiah language, the arm of the Lord has been revealed. You've seen it. Or to put it in John's language, so many signs were done in front of you. But here's the next verse. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. You've seen it, but you don't get it. You don't perceive what is being said and what is being communicated about the God of the universe. Now, we have to be clear here about what we're saying and what we're not saying. God is not hardening or blinding people who could otherwise believe and hear and see. Instead, this hardening comes from God on people who have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, hardened by the deceitfulness of their own sin. Hardening from God does not happen to morally. Neutral people. Hardening from God doesn't happen to good people who are hapless victims of a capricious deity. That's not what's being described here. Hardening is a judgment from God against the guilt of our sin. That's the hardening that is being Described, and of course, the softening, the ability to hear, is a gift of His incredible, undeserved, extraordinary love and grace that is given to those who would follow Him. The rejection of the glory of Jesus. And the seeking of our own glory is the nail in the coffin of humanity. The unbelief of your friends, the unbelief of the people that you talk to and you try to tell them about Jesus, the unbelief of the children of Israel is under the sovereign disposition of Almighty God. That's what John wants you to know at the end of the book of signs. It's not unexpected, and it's not happening outside of the purposes of God. Unbelief fulfills His purposes. Unbelief fulfills His Word. Is it mysterious? You bet. Is it sad? And is it tragic? You bet. When Jesus went into Jerusalem, he didn't dance around and say, can't wait for them to be destroyed now. I know the hardening's coming. Can't wait for that, he wept. He wept over them. Is it ultimately incomprehensible? You bet. Our call to worship this morning, the reason I chose it, very simple. It ends with this line, your thoughts are very deep. Your thoughts, O God, are very deep, deeper than ours, to be able to comprehend these things. But the unbelief of those to whom the word was spoken is in accord with the word that was spoken. That's the theology of unbelief. That's the why. Why? well, what then do you do? What then do you do? We don't need to look in depth at every word in this next section of the passage, the, the, the words of Jesus, because John has placed them here as kind of a reminder, a kind of a way to comprehend all that Jesus has said in His ministry, and we've seen them. We've seen how Jesus unites Himself with the Father And shows us that his words are the Father's words. His deeds are the ones that the Father has given him to do. We don't have to look at each and every one of these. But John places these here, I think, to show us what Jesus did and what we are to do in the face of unbelief. To quote Paul, it is not as though the word of God has failed that's what it looks like. When all these unbelievers are running around, it looks to us like the failure of the word of God. It is not, Paul says, as though the word of God has failed. That's John's point. That's Jesus' point. And he says, listen, here's the essence of the word, the word incarnate and the word spoken. The essence of the word incarnate, the essence of the word spoken is eternal life. Eternal life. Verse 50, I know that his commandment is eternal life. In John 6, Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. They're able to revive, to divide what we said earlier between the spirit and the soul, to bring life. To your otherwise dead spirit, hear this. The essential core of the word is not judgment, but salvation. That's what it says. That's what Jesus says in verse 47. I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, will there be judgment? Will there be rejection? Will there be hardening? Yes, yes, there will be. But they are the decreed consequence, not the joyous intent. They are the decreed consequence, to be sure, but not the joyous intent for which the Son of Man came into the world. The intent is life When Jesus speaks, when his word is read, the intent is life. The intent is resuscitation of someone who is dead. The intent is the paddles on the chest to get them back into life. The intent is the water thrown across the face of someone who's fainted to wake us up. To get us out of our otherwise sleepiness. Psalm 133 says, there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That's the message of the word of God, life forevermore, eternal life with me. Even the judgments of God, the judgments of God indeed, the judgments of God in word are designed to produce life. Even those are intended to be life-giving. This partial rejection by Israel, this partial hardening, is what Paul calls it in Romans chapter 11, this partial hardening that has taken place to Israel is tragic and sad and Bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. Remember the context. The Greeks are coming. The hardening has taken place on Israel, and now the Greeks who've been lost in philosophical words for hundreds of years. Lost. Now those of the words are coming to the Word. The hardening here, boom, the message goes out there. And the world starts coming to the Savior. Paul writes it like this. Through their, that is Israel's, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And how sweet and wonderful it will be if it boomerangs back on the children of Israel. How sweet, how sweet when it's thrown out by a people who rejected it, it sweeps around and envelops the world and comes back and hits Israel in the head. It says, Wake up. Wake up, children of Abraham and believe in the good news. What do you do in the face of unbelief? What do you do? You do three things. Don't worry, they're simple things. You do three things. One, in the face of unbelief, you believe in the word that was spoken. In the face of unbelief, you believe You believe in the Word incarnate. You believe in the Word spoken. You believe in the Word recorded. You believe in Jesus for life. Forget what everybody else is doing. Forget it. Uh, I know some of you are homeschooled and some of you are in Christian schools, but some of you are not. Some of you are in public schools, and you feel like, perhaps, you're the only one. You're the only one. Nobody else believes around me. How can this be true when nobody else believes? The call to you is believe. And by the way, young Elijahs, you are not the only one. You're not. You're never the only one. It may feel like you're the only one. You're never the only one. Believe. Secondly, what do you do in the face of unbelief? You keep the word. You keep the word that was spoken. Jesus talks here about those who did not keep the word that he had spoken. But what are you to do? You're supposed to keep the word that was spoken. You're supposed to struggle with all of your might by the power of the Spirit of God to keep this word, to keep these commands, to hold on to this gospel in, a face of, in the face of a world that will tell you that it is silly, that you might as well believe in an octopus in the sky. Keep the word in the face of unbelief because in keeping the word of God, there is much reward. Reward. There are words of life, and there's reward in keeping these words. Third, last, in the face of unbelief, Do what Jesus did. Speak the word. Speak the word. Preach the word. Share the word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. That's the way it happens. That's the way God has decreed in His eternal purposes for it to accomplish its purposes. The Word, according to God's appointment, praise God, still has the power to allow the blind to see, to allow the spiritually deaf to hear, to renew the will, to enlighten the mind in the knowledge of Christ, so that so that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is not inconsistent with the sovereign purposes of God. It falls smack in the middle of it. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, because that's a softened heart that calls out on the name of the Lord. Speak the word to your friends. I'll preach it, you you speak it. Because it is the word of life that has gone out. How are they to hear? How are they to hear? The word that was spoken, if you don't speak it and I don't preach it. Why do so many people not believe? The answer is that the glorious, deep purposes of God might be fulfilled. What do you do in the face of the unbelief? You keep on keeping on in the word that he has spoken. That's what you do. Lord, help us to do exactly that. Help us to be faithful to you. Whatever comes in this world, help us to seek after the good news of the gospel, to believe in you, Jesus. And for those who might be here today and have never called on your name before, may today be the day, the day of salvation, the day when the ears are unstopped you work in their hearts and they cry out to you and you save them. May it be a sweet day We pray in your name. Amen.